1: Over the last few weeks, Conor has been going back through various archives with Emma Boyle and Eddie Noonan of Frameworks Films, marking the fact that together they're in business over 21 years, creating the most incredible series of documentaries about Cork and Cork's history. It's been an amazing voyage so far and people have responded so well to it. Our listeners have been showing a fierce appetite for records, Going back through the years, and I know the last two stories, the Blackpool story and the Sunbeam story, really resonated with a lot of people. The one they're going to talk about this morning is the lives and times of stonemasons. It's called Set in Stone. And Connor asked Eddie and Emma what started their interest in telling this story.
3: We, we were contacted by Jim Fahy, a mm-hmm. well-known Cork stonemason and part of the, the Cork Masons Union. Yeah. He initially just asked us would we come and film a, an, an exhibition opening they were having in the City and County archives there with Brian McGee in, in Blackpool. Yeah. We went and, and and from that I suppose we just kind of could see the wealth of stories they had and you know Jim in particular is is just incredibly passionate about recording the the history and heritage of the stonemasons. And I suppose it was from that that we thought, look, this could make a fantastic documentary.
4: Now, the interesting thing is, and we can prove this point, how do masons tell each other apart from each other? Because you mentioned Fahey. It's a kind of a thing that's handed out from father to son. It's it's kind of a family thing. So there would have been several Fahys and several Murphys and several McCarthy's and several. How did they tell each other apart?
5: Oh, that was the, the nicknames. Everybody was kind of given a nickname. People like Ham for Jam. There was one man, he came in and he had his his ham sandwiches, and there was another man who'd come in and he'd have the jam sandwiches. He'd ask his buddy, like, do you want a swap? Like, do you want ham for jam? And that was it. He That's how he got his nickname, ham for jam. So it kind of went on like that. And then, I mean, another famous family of, of masons were the the, uh, the Falvies. There was a lot of brothers. I think it was four brothers and they all had nicknames.
4: And you must admit you, you felt like you'd struck gold when you suddenly got the list of all of the different names. It was pure cork in a way when you listen to them. And here's an excerpt where we learn about all the different nicknames that everyone had for each other. I suppose
6: it was absolutely very practical when you think about it. Who's your father? And I said my was the black
7: one. So there was a lot of Falvies there. Most of them had nicknames. There was a lot of as they say, Timmy's and Peddies and Jimmy's and there'd be the Felvies, there. there'd be so many Felvies, Fetys, Medans, as he said, the O'Brien's and so on, and the Joneses. And you'd you'd have to know when you come onto the site, there could be three or four different sets of felvies in there, and they'd they'd have to know like whose son are you? Jim Edman was the shark anyway. Tarky Sullivan was Paddy Sullivan.
6: We had Gangster Murray. He spent a few years in America when he came home, we called him Gangster.
2: And then there was the there was another filly. He was called uh, Charlie Chaplin because he sort of walked maybe a little like Charlie Chaplin.
7: The pie bar was there. That was then Jones's brother. Billy. He was a foxy filly, so we called him the pie bar. And we called then then the tuna, no, we just called him the pony. And his father was the horse, so we christened him well, but over the priest, you know.
6: And they called my father the blacker because he was very very dark. He had a brother that was very fair and they called him the whiter. There was another that used to be on about his teeth being so white and they called him the pearls because he said his, his, his teeth were like pearls. And then the, the youngest fellow, Mikey, they called him the pilot because he had done a stunt with the RAF. So, like, the four brothers were the blacker, the whiter, the pearl and the pilot. There
7: was uh, Paddy Nason then and Tommy Nason. Paddy was uh, Colonel Springsprung and Tommy was Colonel Ironsides. My own sons called
6: me Jock, like at the time the 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 Ewing's Jock Ewing used to be on the telly, and they used to always be
7: mocking me about it, like we're going to call you Jock Ewing, you know. Tommy Hurley then they used called him Ham for Jam. He always said Jam in his lunch. His wife was to in the jam factory, and then he'd come in the morning. What have you in your lunch, Marco? When to come to tea time? Oh, I have a bit of ham. I'll give you jam for ham, and that stuck to him, you know.
6: My grandfather. Old Danot, they used to call him steady stroke because he'd go to work every day and he had the same old pace all day long, you know. No, no burst of speed, no nothing, but at the end of the day, he had a fair day's work done.
7: There was a man called Jim Bryan. He was the gum. He
5: was known as the gum. And the reason he was known as the gum, he was the most educated
7: man you ever met in your life.
4: Besides the humour, and it reminds me when we were talking about the Sunbeam factory as well last week, that humour was something that kind of bound everybody together as well. But there was also a great therapy in in being a stonemason, particularly if you're going to practice it for life. It was good for you. I know I've an experience. My father once wasn't feeling great and he was put into the company of a stonemason for a week in County Clare and he came back in flying form altogether.
3: Well, actually, a lot of the the men do talk about that, all right. You know, I think... There's something about working on the stone. Mm. It's tough work, there's no doubt about that. Yep. But I think for those that really had a kind of a gra for it, you know, they could just work away and kind of lose themselves in the stone, you know?
8: Oh, well, I have to say, like, once you got into the storm, work, there was nothing like it. Because you could be out in the middle of the countryside on your own. And I think there was nothing better than it than to be there with your thoughts, as the man would say. And just the thing about stone, like, is that you could do anything with it if you took the time with it. And uh, like you could spend an hour, well, we'll say half an hour, dressing a piece of stone, and just on the last tap of the hammer, the whole thing was shattered on you, and you'd have to start all over again. You know, it was one of these jobs; it was time consuming, but it was great therapy if you're a bit mad.
3: But I think you know what what kind of also attracted us, I think, to this story was that you know if you if you get on a. a, a city tour bus or something. If you go and visit a city and mm. you, you're always shown all these wonderful buildings, uh, you know, around the city and you're often told who the architect is. But you're never, you never get to hear the story of who actually made these buildings, who were the men who actually, the bricklayers, the stone masons, yeah. the blocklayers, all these different crafts. You know, that was what was so incredible and of such a rich history that these men, you know, were able to share with us. And and the love that they had for it and the sort of pride in their work, you know, was extraordinary. They were the men that literally built Cork City. And that's what's so fascinating about it as well.
4: Another thing that caught my ear was the fact that I suppose every craft and every trade has its secrets. Like somebody who works in wood and a wood turning machine might turn his back at the vital moment if there's anyone else watching where he does a little twist or a turn so no one could see his trademark move. I suppose that... The masons were the same themselves, particularly stonemasons, and I was amazed to hear that they actually had their own language.
5: That's right, yeah, That the barrelogue. Mm-hmm. That's how I suppose they communicated. Mm-hmm. So somebody else listening in or something like that, or if they want to talk, maybe the boss wasn't around or around, you know, so they, they'd <laughs> communicate that way. It's kind of died out a little bit yeah. now, but again, through Jim, the work of Jim Fahey, he's kind of restored a lot of those stories around that. I know he's gathered lots of sayings and I think even we still use I think you know I think one of the words is mach or "mako." "Mako" was the boy or the, the, the mason there's other, other other words as well you
7: know
6: Well you'd hear it now there like I wouldn't even have a word of it but um, I'd hear him speaking it and it was like you know, what are they talking about, you be saying to yourself? You wouldn't understand the word of it. Like, like someone speaking Italian or, or, or Spanish to me you now, like, you know, but I knew it was their own language and they could talk away and you, about you and you wouldn't even know what they're saying.
7: So then I've been walking then with a man, Tom Madden, God be merciful to him. He, says, he taught me the log because every word that he'd say was log nearly and i said, say, what is that, Mr Madden? And then he say, look, by and then he'd say if whatever he had been saying to me in our own language let's put it that way
2: so the uh, when you when you went to work then you you would just kind of automatically listened, you know I you would hear spatters of it the and uh the, you'd hear men the men in there, especially if they didn't want somebody else to hear what they were saying if it was a bit of a secret they'd, they'd say like a showroom the 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 car you know, uh, uh, look out, look out, buddy, you know, that your man is listening there.
0: The language was there, you know, was that, um, you know, that uh, every mason was called Mako, like, you know, you know, you're Mako and all that, like.
6: the boo now, like, that was, have a look at the beautiful movie coming up, you know, the boo Mak, you know, like, Mako was the mason, Mak, they was the college of the like you know, and Mako, hey Mako, you know.
2: the only I think the only word that kind of lived on, right, uh, from the days of the Barlog, was uh Mach. and mock was was half Irish, half Barlog, because mock, right was 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 a son right but the, uh, when the, when the Masons would be referring to mock right it could it would be buddy or it would be son right or uh, it would be friend you know the uh, that would, uh, that was the one that's about the only world I'd say that lived on.
4: You're talking there about things dying out in a way, I suppose, as years have gone on and things have become more mass produced. The amount of time you spend as an apprenticeship have gone down and certain things, I suppose, that used to be there years ago aren't there anymore. And you cover that as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the time that they served, seven years kind of initially, um, you mm. know, was the time and... I think for a lot of them, they they really remembered that time fondly. You know, they really felt that's where they were formed. I mean, it was very strict. There were certain kind of rules they talk about, you know, you ate with all the other apprentices and things like that. I mean, you really were serving your time. But at the same time, I think they all recognised that that's what gave them the skills, you know. Mm
6: -hmm. Everything is uh, so fast and everything is on price. They don't have really time to teach the apprentices, you know. It's all hurry, hurry and get this done. If they can't get it done, they're losing money. And a lot of it, like, results in shoddy work, say, along the way, that they wouldn't have maybe the pride in it, for the reason why they were not shown properly. And I know the apprenticeships are don't uh, say four years now. There
0: was a reason for why we done seven years. It wasn't for the good of our health anyway. Uh, for the money we were getting, I started off. I was getting one pound and ten shillings a week for forty-four hours. One pound and ten shillings. When the was up the road, I walked in the that that I used hanging around with on the street, were walking in factories and they were getting seven pounds a week. And my mother put up with getting one pound and ten shillings from me every week until I came out of my time. And my father said to me one time, he says, I always remember, son, he said, you won't be always getting one pound and ten shillings. Because I, I wanted to get out of the trade because I, get, I was going to with a girl, and I wanted to be able to, you know, flamoose the girl and show that I could spend things too. <laughs> and he said, you won't be always getting one pound and ten shillings, he said. But he said, the man up the, up the road there was getting seven pounds inside the shoe factory down the road, he says... He'll always be getting seven pounds, and he was true. I came over there afterwards, and I done very well for myself, and I travelled the world, and I walked with, with some great tradesmen.
3: When you when you do look at a documentary like this, and you hear these men talking with such passion and pride about their work, it is an awful pity in some ways that some of these traditions haven't been able to be kept on by developers and the designers and architects of the city today. You know, I suppose there was a richness to it that, that perhaps isn't always reflected today in today's buildings and designs
8: i be quite honest with you, I think this, uh, our trade has turning into a trade for hen- handyman. The work has been dumbed down each and every day. They're f- trying to find a way to shorten uh, the procedure to do a craft.
4: Now, finally, Eddie, I was going to ask you at the end of the documentary you cover an amazing story and it's the story of the last statue maker.
5: That's right. When Jim Jim Fahey mentioned Morris, Morris O'Donnell, he had yeah. a, a studio there off over in Middle Parish. Mm. We did a short interview with Morris and he was, uh, as I said, the, the last statue maker. He actually made the, the Ballin' statue wow. when we met Morris. Wow. When we met Morris, then we said, oh no, there's a definitely a longer documentary there. And so we went back to Morris and we did a full, I think it was another half hour documentary just on Morris and his life,
8: his story. We have a man there you now with the last statue maker in Cork, Morris O'Donnell. Uh, this man always was probably going out of business because well I suppose first of all there's no one there to take over but after that then you have statues being brought in from from probably China and places like that where they're mass produced by cheap labor
7: I think I'm the last of the statue makers there was three statue makers in Dublin there was one in Limerick Philip by the name of Boosley and there was Bernardes and in Cork you know and um, that was it myself like I I worked for the Bernardis all the years, and I carried on from them, you know, so that was the end. I don't think there'll be any more statue after me. <laughs> yeah. This is the first time they'll last in the Mojitos.
5: <laughs> As a young boy, he, he, there was an Italian family, I think the Bernardis in yeah. Paul Street, and he, he just knocked at the door one day he had he had carved out i think figures of mussolini around that time of churchill i can't remember some other figures and he he had carved them out from from turf and he brought them in and he said this is my work and is there any chance of a job and they were very impressed with his work so they gave him a job and he he ended up working there for life and he took over the business and unfortunately that big last flood in cork eight ten years ago unfortunately the, the studio was flooded out and, and unfortunately Morris after just after that Morris got sick and unfortunately Morris died a couple of months after that so we, we were just very lucky to get Morris's story
4: yes
3: yeah because just to say like he was just one of these incredibly skilled craftsmen mm. and yet he was a very very humble man you know and he'd worked away all, all his life producing these amazing pieces of work that went all over the world they were in, in great demand and yet he just you know was there in his small studio working away very very humbly so it was it was great to be able to, to record that. And also I suppose just to go back to the Stonemasons, many of those men who appear in that documentary called Set in Stone, many of them passed away not long after the, the making of the documentary. So, you know, for us just it's so important that these stories do get recorded yeah. and get archived. There there's there's such a wealth there in them.
4: In a funny way, you've built your own memorial to all of the people who built <laughs> You know, memorials to others who built statues, who built walls for people to feel safe behind, who built pathways on roads for people to travel on, who built, I suppose, an infrastructure for Ireland that would be longer lasting than the roads themselves that they were built beside. But you yourselves have built an archive and people can actually access it online. Just go to your website.
3: That's right. Yeah, it's www.frameworksfilms.com. We're slowly adding to that ourselves bit by bit where we're putting more and more films up. So if they go to the website, they can click on a link to our YouTube channel and find some of the films there. So we'd be delighted for people to have a look at them.
4: Okay. my thanks to Eddie and to Emma for helping me go on another little bit of voyage back into the past this week. Do you mind if we continue this journey? Because I'm more than curious as to what we'll be covering next week.
3: Absolutely, we'd love to. Thanks very much, Connor, for the opportunity. Cheers, lads.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Connor. I just loved that story this morning. And we're going to finish with a song, which you may, of course, recognise, but it was in fact written by Jim Fahey. And here he is singing it now in a recording made in 2009.
8: Well, my name is Con Fahey. I'm a mason. And I've served up me time at old trade And I walked with me father and brothers We were journeymen playing our trade With me in of an in of an idol. With me in of an in of an idle With me robo bo boo roo boo randy And me trolley keep spreading away